gone through the Bible, uh, book by book, we come to 1 Peter, and boy, Peter is uh, quite the character in the Bible. Aren't you glad that God uses different people? There was a great Bible verse, different strokes for different folks. Remember that Bible verse there? <laughs> different strokes that change the world, right? What you talking about, Willis? Uh, remember all those situations there. But the truth of the matter is, God has wired each of us differently. He's wired us differently, and he has, uh, he's given us strengths, and then we have weaknesses that need to be uh, developed. I had a lady approached me on Sunday. She said, tell me about the spiritual gifts. I want to know how to do the spiritual gifts. How do you do it? And I think when I look at Romans chapter 12, that's my favorite uh, passage on the spiritual gift, 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and Ephesians chapter 4 include them as well. But I like those seven applicable gifts I think are very, very obvious today. And I think it helps when you're leading God's people to kind of see their strengths and weaknesses. But the spiritual gifts that God gives us in there, um, I think we should, we, should, uh, we should thrive in one and strive for all. <laughs> you don't just say, well, I'm just good at this one, so I'm not good at all the other ones. No, I think the more Christ-like we become, Jesus was the perfect God-man. He was good at all of them. Why? Because he was spirit-filled. And when you're spirit-filled, you're going to find yourself strengthened in areas that the Spirit of God will help us do that. And Peter was a hardhead. He was a leader. He was brought to Christ by his little brother, uh, Andrew. And Andrew brought him, to, brought him to Jesus. He followed him. He seemed to be a very aggressive and outspoken guy. He was one of the 12 that was chosen to be one of the three. When Jesus would talk to all of them, he would take three of them, Peter, James, and John, and he spent a little extra time with them, and he got into their heads. And because they would be used of God, James would be the first pastor of the church of Jerusalem and eventually have be beheaded for his stand and for his position. John, of course, would be the longest living uh, disciple, and he would uh, live, outlive everyone, the only one who would not die as a martyr, but he was tortured and boiled in oil and left on the, and excluded from everyone else, left on the Isle of Patmos. That's where God gave us the revelation. But Peter was someone who seemed to be God's instrument to use, especially for the Jewish people. All three of them were fishermen. Uh, James, the son of of uh, Zebedee, and so was John, James and John, but Peter, also a fisherman, with his brother Andrew. They were up from the northern part of Israel, not in Judea, but up in Galilee. But they were committed followers of Jesus, and yet he oftentimes struggled. And aren't you glad that you got the example of people who struggled? <laughs> I struggled too. You struggle. We come through situations we're not sure exactly uh, that we did the right thing, and those kind of situations. Well, Peter was like that. But Peter was the first to declare that Jesus was the Christ. And he said, who do men say that I am? Well, they say this, and that. who do you think I am? I think you're the Christ. He said, you guys going to go away? Peter was the one who spoke up and said, where can we go? Only you have the words of life. He said some very valuable things. He also betrayed the Lord Jesus Christ on the night of his crucifixion three times before the cock crew from the time of his arrest until the cock crew the next morning. He denied the Lord and went out and wept and was brokenhearted about that. Uh, when Jesus uh, confronted him on the, the uh, Sea of Galilee there beside the beach and gave him bread and fish, you might remember that little story. And he said, you know, 
He didn't say it to everybody else, but he did say it to Peter because Peter was responsible for the, the fruitless fishing trip. <laughs> he said, I'm going fishing. I'll do what I did before I came to know the Lord. And went out there and he caught nothing. And then, of course, Jesus had the food. They did get a catch. And with 166 fish flopping over there on the, on the, on the, uh, the, the shore, he said, lovest thou me more than these? Well, you know I love you, Lord. You know I'm, you know, I'm very fond of you. I've been spending three and a half years with you because I didn't ask you that. But if that's the case, though, would you feed my sheep? Would you not be a fisherman for a living, but would you feed my flock? And, of course, he asked him that three times, and it frustrated him. After that rip-your-face-off session that gave, Jesus gave to him, he looked over at John and said, what are you going to do with him? The dreamer, the little guy right here, what are you going to do with him? You, you told me what to do. What are you going to do with him? How are you going to use him? What are you going to say to him? That's when Jesus said, look, if I want to keep him alive till I come back to get everybody, what is that to thee? You know, Follow me, Peter. You stay in my shadow. How about that? Well, that'd be a good idea for all of us, huh? Just to keep following the Lord and quit looking around and trying to compare ourselves among ourselves, but just keep following the Lord. And I think it's interesting when the Spirit of God came and there was a great day of Pentecost, Peter was right smack in the middle of it. He was the preacher. And then a few weeks later, when it was time to, to uh, go to the temple in the house in the hour of prayer, guess who, who was going together? Peter and John. Then he healed the crippled man, and the Lord used him. He helped him with a lesson with Cornelius uh, to get over his prejudice against uh, the Gentile believers. God helped him. Now he's at the end of his life, and he's got two books that God chose to include in the canon of scriptures, and 1 Peter is a great, great book of the Bible. Let's look at it real quickly. Chapter 1, verse number 2. I'm sorry, chapter 2, verse number 9. And 10, I've chosen these, and they're not necessarily, uh, they're just a choice that, that have been made. But here are some key verses as he tells the people, Ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, which in times past were not a people, but are now the people of God which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Would you read verse 11 with me, everyone? Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims. Verse 12 says, Having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God when God visits them in the day of visitation. And it talks about our government responsibilities. With these passages of Scripture, let me just kind of give you a few things. Let me go through the outline quickly. I'll share the outline with you. Then we'll talk about a little bit some key concepts and then some practical principles. And we'll be dismissed this evening or go into our prayer time. Look, if you would, please, at the outline. Christian salvation. Chapter 1, and, and after he does his greeting, verse 1, 2 through 10, talks about the salvation that God makes available to us through his son. I want you to look real quickly. Start looking at verse number two and look down there. Tell me words that are important to salvation that you see. Just raise your hand if you see one. What's one, Jason? Yes, elect. Uh, may I just tell you, there are three concepts. If you get them in the wrong order, you'll get squirrely in your theology. The Bible tells us the first thing that God wants us to know is that he knows everything. 
He has foreknowledge. What does foreknowledge mean? What does it mean? He knows before. See, when I look at my day, I look what happened yesterday, what happened today, but I have no clue what's going to happen tomorrow. But God knows what's going to happen tomorrow better than I can remember what happened five minutes ago. God looks at everything in the same frame. That's why he could tell you when his son's going to come. He doesn't mind telling the future. He's already there. He has information that you and I don't have. He knows tomorrow. So when you think about salvation, first of all, you know what? You're saved according to God's foreknowledge. He knew you would be saved. Then salvation is election. When you get saved, you're elected. God says, now you're, you're his. He's yours. You're elected. You're in the family. That's salvation. That's the moment of salvation. Foreknowledge, election, and then predestination. Predestination is what we see in uh, Romans 8, 28, 27. And we know that all things work together for good to them that are called of God, to them who love God, to them who are called according to his purpose, whom he did foreknow, once again, foreknowledge. He also did predestinate to become conformed to the image of his son. What is God predestinated you and I to be? Not saved or lost. Not predestined to hell or heaven. But for conformity to the image of Jesus. You're one day going to look at Jesus and you're going to be just like him. When we see him, we shall be like him. So we'll see him as he is. Here's the problem with the, with the wrong theology. They put predestination first. They think you've got to be predestined, you're going to go to heaven or hell. That's 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 problem. You'll get squirrely real quick. Okay? Uh, we predestined, God predestined. He didn't predestine anyone to heaven or to hell. Does God know who's going to heaven or hell? Absolutely. He has foreknowledge. He has the inside track on the future. He knows what's going to happen. He doesn't mind telling. That's why you can put the book of Revelation and say, here's what's going to happen. Where our great grandfathers and ancestors thought they were going to tattoo 666 on our head. Now, every one of us who live in this stage know exactly how we could be chipped and located and one day scan our wrist to see if we can get enough money to buy bananas. We can see it. They couldn't get it. You know, God knew. He could see it. He looked down the ages of time. He knows exactly what's going to happen. He has foreknowledge. Election is salvation. Predestination is is eternal sanctification. Holy is Jesus. Well, that's a good verse. I'm glad you picked that up. I spent a little bit too long on that particular topic, and I won't do the next one that way, okay? Someone else, what's another salvation word? Look Look at that. Look in your Bible. Tell me another salvation word you see. What is it? Death kept, yeah, verse, verse 5, who are kept by the power of God unto salvation, by faith in salvation. That's one, of the, that's one of my favorite verses, not the greatest, but that's one of my favorite verses on eternal security. When you have someone who says, you know, if you're saved or you lose your state, if you, if you got yourself saved, you'll lose it. <laughs> but if God saved you by faith in his son, you're kept by whose power, verse number 5? His power, good one. Good one. Kept. What's another one? Yes, sir, in the back, Glenn. Sanctification. Sanctified, set apart. You, when you get saved, you're instantly out of the devil's family, and you're into God's family. You're out of going to hell, now you're into going to heaven. There's a lot of things you're set apart. That's a good word. Good. Ramses, what are you thinking of there? Grace is in that passage. I see it. What's another one? Well, there's about 15 of them. Come on now, help me out. Who's What? The blood of Jesus Christ. Do you see any kind of work of the Holy Spirit in there? 
Yes, the work of the Holy Spirit. What else do you see? Mercy is in that passage of Scripture. How are we saved? We're saved not because we deserve to be saved, but because of the mercies of God. Salvation is the first topic you'll see there, and I, I think it's a great study. I'd like to encourage you to go home tonight and just maybe put a little pencil, underline every word that has to do with salvation. I think you'll find a lot of fun doing that. Look at the next thing on the, uh, on the outline. Not only Christian salvation, but a Christian's relationship. And you're going to talk about a relationship with laws, relationship with employers, with husbands, with wives, with uh, elders, and others will be mentioned in that. How about the next one there? Christians suffering. One of the key, um, there's two main topics I see in 1 Peter, and one of them is submission, the other one is suffering. Two things I don't really care for, either one of those. I'm naturally kind of stubborn and rebellious, sinful. But I'm also uh, suffering. I, I, don't, I might be allergic to pain. Whatever something's hard, I don't want to go through something hard. I don't want, I want things to be easy and smooth and, and non-confrontational. That's what I want. But suffering is going to be a part of a Christian's life. And Peter understood that. Peter would eventually be died as a crucifixion. And history tells us, not the Bible, but he would be turned upside down and crucified upside down uh, as a martyr for the Lord. That's a little bit of suffering. A lot of suffering between there and there. He knew what a jail cell looked like. He knew what being broken out of a jail cell looked like. He knew what going through difficult times were because suffering was realistic, and he's writing to Christians who are scattered abroad all over the known world. It was a circular letter that was read to multiple believers in many churches, the book of 1 Peter. And so it's a Christian suffering, a Christian's relationship, a Christian sanctification, excuse me, salvation. And then number, number um, four there, a Christian community. Chapter five has a lot to do with that, and we'll come back to that in a moment. Here's a couple themes I want you to see real quickly. If you're looking at your Bible and at that theme, the first theme is salvation. We've already talked about that. The second theme is the Scriptures. And uh, you're going to see that in verse number 11, 12, and then thir- actually from uh, 13, you'll find a reference to the Scriptures. Then you're going to find sanctification in the end of chapter uh, number 1. Look at real quickly at a reference to that. And we, we love this verse. It's what the Bible tells us. But let's look at verse 15. Would you read it with me? Chapter 1, verse 15. But as he which hath called you is, so be ye holy in all manners, Okay, so the Bible says, because it is written, be ye holy for I am holy. Okay, do you have to be, can you produce holiness to get yourself saved? No, you have to exchange the holiness of Jesus, right? But the Bible tells us there needs to be an effort on our part. The Holy Spirit will help us, but it's going to be, it's it's a command to say, I want you to be holy like I'm holy. I want you to be pure. I want you to be clean, just like I'm clean, just like I'm pure. I want you to be like that. That is a, that's a command, and it speaks of sanctification. Look, if you would, please, in chapter number um, 2, you'll see the, word, the, the, the concepts of separation. He said, I want you to be different. I want you to be a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people. Now, we use the word peculiar like weird, okay? But really, it's, it's distinctively unique or different, or it's bought. Have you ever heard of a, a purchasing agent? Sometimes they'll call them someone who procures things. That means you belong to God. And if you belong to God, you should live differently. 
And we see here, to live differently, we'll have to live separated to God from the world. You can't be one with God and not be two with the world. That's going to have to be an option. You're going to have to decide. But he, he, he gives a lot of attention to separation. That's number four. Number five, he'll begin to go into submission. Look at the first word in verse 13. What's, it, what's your Bible say? Chapter 2, verse 13, what do you have? Submit. Submit who? Submit yourselves. You're going to find that. In verse 15, it says it's the well-doing. It's the will of God that we learn to submit to our God-given authorities. Um, verse 18, servants, be subject. That means to submit to your own masters. And then in verse 20, it says that ye do well. He's referring to submission um, and submitting to authorities. And then he talks about not, re not retaliating, not forlorning, not stealing, not, not, not taking even a paperclip from our, from our job. And then we go into chapter 3, likewise, in the same way, ye wise be in subjection. And you'll see there in verse number 6, as long as you do well, it is a, a submissiveness that God speaks about. Then we find uh, also there is a mutual submission with the husband and wife together. But certainly in this case, when men uh, do not uh, obey the Bible, they can without the Bible be won by a conversation of their wives. It's a beautiful passage there that it takes a lot of courage to live that way. Let me tell you something. One of the um, problems with me wanting to submit or, 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 dis, or doing the submission with my authorities is fear. We're afraid. Can I trust? And you know, the truth matters. Every time God asks us to submit, he says, children, obey your parents. How? In the Lord. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands. How? As unto the Lord. Now, why do you submit to government? Because it's under the Lord. He's the one who ordained government. I don't do it because of who my president is or who my mayor is or who, if I like the police chief or I don't like him. I do it because it's under the Lord. God is asking us to do that as under the Lord. And one of the things that keeps us from doing that sometimes is a fear. Look, if you would please, at verse number 6. And this is an, as an illustration. Even Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And he had not been a good leader for her. He had not protected her. He had not helped her. He had created a lot of vulnerability for her. Whose daughters ye are, as long as you do well. That do well points up to being lovingly submissive and, and uh, playing out the Christian role. And you're not what? Afraid with any amazement. It's not like, a, how dare him? How dare my boss do that? How did it? You know, you're not fearful. You're trusting God. Anyone who fears God doesn't fear other people. People who fear people do not fear God. And we can oftentimes have a lot of fear, and a lot of times because we don't trust not our government, we don't trust him. We don't trust our, we don't trust our, our authorities, we don't trust God. And these are areas that God's telling us that. Look at the next one. I think if you, if you could see the next one, beginning in verse 14 of chapter 3 and continue on, he's going to talk about living a life that is not easy. It's suffering. Suffering. And he'll go all the way through chapter 14 talking about being reproached. I think I'd like to look at verse number, chapter 4, verse number 12, if we can, please. Are you looking at chapter 4, verse 12? Look at it with me. Read out loud with me, would you please? Beloved, think it not concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing happen unto you. I have a sweet uh, person not too long ago, and they said, Pastor, why did this happen to me? 
Of all people, I'm trying to do the right thing, and this happened to me. You know what God, you know what Peter says? Think it not strange. <laughs> if you're going to go through trials, it's going to happen. Trials come for reasons, and they come in seasons. But they're going to come to everyone's life. He said, don't be surprised when you have opposition while you're trying to live the Christian life. It's all, this whole book is about the Christian. It's about the Christian salvation, his sanctification, uh, his submission, his, uh, his, his, the scriptures. talks about each of those things. It's certainly going to talk about his suffering. He said, don't, don't be surprised when you go through difficult times. Because they will try you. They will burn, that, burn away the dross inside of our life. And, and, it'll, and it'll, it'll get down. When you're suffering, uh, you don't really care about some of the other phylacteries that are going on. I remember years ago, and I, ter- I shared this story um, carefully, but our son Tyler, when he died, he died on August the 15th, 2008. And we had been eight years in, in, uh, in, in uh, Long Beach at the time, and, and we had a Christian school. And there was always a lot of things that when you're starting a Christian school and you get a bunch of teachers who are passionate about getting stuff done, getting their bulletin boards done, getting this, making sure they have the chalk, make sure they have everything they need. There's a lot of hustle and bustle going on. But Tyler passed away in August the 15th, and we started school two weeks later. And the teachers came in the next week. They were supposed to come in the next week. But, you know, the truth of the matter is it was one of the easiest starts to any school year I've ever experienced. There was less drama because no one, the, a chalk, they weren't going to argue over a piece of chalk. They were going to argue about a bulletin board. Everything got done beautifully. People worked hard. But there was a lot, there's, a, there's very little scuttlebutt. You know why? Because we were going through a hard time. And that didn't matter in compared to what we were going through as a church and as a family and as a unit. You know, when you go through difficult times, it kind of, it kind of it burns out the fluff. You just don't get, you don't, you're not getting excited about stupid stuff whenever you're hurting. People who are in the hospital, they're not really like, oh, you know, I just, I wish I could be on, I was open to play golf every day this week or whatever. They're not thinking about that. People on their deathbed, they're not thinking about another hour of work or overtime. They're thinking about people and things that are important. Not stuff that's fluff. And I think suffering does that to us. Certainly it's one of the keys here. Chapter 5, if you'll look at that, you can see that uh, he's talking about shepherding people. And I like this verse, verse 1. Uh, the elders which are among you, I exhort. Now he's talking to pastors and people who lead others spiritually. He said, a witness of the sufferings of Christ. He said, I, I'm talking to elders and I'm an elder. And I saw Jesus suffer and I was a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. And I'm with him on that suffering. Verse number two, read it with me. Feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind, neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being examples of the flock, that when the chief shepherd shall appear, ye shall receive the crown of glory that fadeth not away. And so he tells us there, he says, look, I'm a pastor, and I'm talking to everyone who pastors people. Focus on feeding the flock of God. And then take the oversight, that means... Plan it. Organize. Organize that. Oversee what's going on. And then he says, don't do it because you have to. Do it because you get to. Don't do it for money. Do it of a readiness of mind. Don't be a lord over God's heritage. Don't be someone who is just like, just a, you're, the, you're the focus of attention and everybody just says, well, you want just, just going from I do to you better. <laughs> don't be, a, don't be a, a dictator. But be an example to the flock. Because the chief shepherd's coming. 
This flock is not mine. Your Sunday school class is not yours. And your attitude should be, I'm here right now as a representative of Jesus Christ. I'm here on this bus route. I'm a bus captain. I'm a bus driver. I'm doing this. I am always in stewardship, doing something for another one's flock. And when he comes back, we're going to have a talk. He's going to talk to me. He's going to talk to you if you're in charge of something. He's going to say, how did you do with what I gave you to do? He said, do it without, without um, have to. Do it because you get to. Don't do it for money. Don't do it for fame. Don't do it as a dictator, but be an example of the flock. So when he comes, the chief shepherd, he's going to give rewards to those who shepherd people. The last topic, I don't like this topic, but he does talk about him, and that's Satan. Why? Because Satan is very real. He's not to be, he's not to be praised. He's not to be given more attention than, than he should get, but he is a very real in our world today, and his imps are, are working overtime, especially during different uh, times where God is trying to do some big, big things. The devil's going to do some opposition. He speaks about that. Then he speaks a little bit about the folks that he wanted to greet, and they're about relationships. With that in mind, here's the principles that I think we can practice. Number one is our response when you get a raw deal. How many ever got a raw deal before? <laughs> you got a raw deal. You got something that didn't happen the way it should happen. You were on the bottom. You were on the short end of the stick. What happened to you? It, it really wasn't fair. It wasn't what you think it was was justifiable. What do you do when you have a raw deal? I think Peter kind of shares with us on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit a couple things. Number one, submit. Yield yourself. Chapters two, yield yourself to the laws. Employees, keep yielding yourself to your employers. Keep uh, being submissive. Um, and here was slaves and masters. Wives, keep submitting. Husbands, keep loving. Keep dwelling with your life according to knowledge, giving honor to the wife. Elders and others, keep on leading. If you'll please look at verse number 5 of chapter 5, the Bible says, Likewise, ye younger, youngers, submit yourselves unto the elders, to those that are older. Yea, all of you be subject one to another and be clothed with humility, for God resists the proud, but he giveth grace unto the humble. And humble yourselves and uh, under the mighty hand of God, that may exalt you in due time. And it's going to talk about Satan, who is going after the weak, the weary, the wounded, and the wayward. Submission is a way to deal with the raw deal. Number two, don't retaliate. Chapter 3, verse 9. Would you turn there, please? Chapter 3, verse 9. And let's look at this, what the Bible tells us here. He says, um, in verse number 8. He said, finally, be all of one mind, having compassion one to another, love as brethren, be pitiful, be courteous. Read verse number nine with me, would you please? Not rendering or railing for railing, but counterwise blessing, knowing that ye are thereunto called, that ye should inherit a blessing. And it goes on to talk about that. I think you can also see, if you would please, at chapter two, and verse number 22, speaking of Jesus and what he went through, and he gave us an example. Look at verse 21 of chapter 2. For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also did what? Suffered for us, leaving us what? what? An example that we should follow after. Who did no sin, he was innocent. Neither was guile found in his mouth. He didn't say anything he shouldn't have said. Who, when he was reviled, what did he do? He didn't, he didn't give a tit for tat. When suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that does what? Who in the world does that? Who judges righteously? God the Father. You can trust him. 
Yeah. And then let's look at the last statement. So whenever you get a raw deal, turn it over to the Lord. Submit. Don't retaliate. And remember God in the equation. God's got something going. And he's the great equalizer. We might think, oh, man, if I do this, I'm going to be the biggest loser. You might be surprised. Remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Who became the biggest winners of those things? It looked like they were losing. Guess what happened? They became leaders. You know, Daniel and the lion's den. Guess what happened? That was a bad day for Daniel. Life and times of Daniel. What happened from that? He got exalted even more. God began to bless him even more so. And God wants to bless us. And, uh, he, but we need to remember him in the equation. Here's a couple other verses. Look at chapter 4. I think I read chapter 4, verse 19. Let's turn there, if you would, please. The Bible says, in verse 19, Wherefore, let him that suffer according to the will of God commit the keeping of their souls to him when well-doing. Keep doing what you're supposed to be doing. As unto a faithful what? Who wired all the universe? That's why children, he says, children, obey your parents and the Lord for this right. Honor your father and mother's first commandment with promise that it may be well with thee. You know, if uh, I think that God has built all of creation against the fool who dishonors his mom and dad. <laughs> you, you can't be right with God and wrong with your parents. Keep dishonoring your mom and dad and thinking you want the blessings of God. It won't happen. He's fixed all of creation against us in that area. And he's the creature. If, you if you're going through something you don't deserve, leave it to God. Commit it to the one who can take care of it. He can do that for you. And then the last thing, of course, we've already read chapter 5, verses 6 and 7. Humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. He'll exalt us in due time. I hope you'll take time to read First Peter. It's a good, good book. And it's a good book any day, but especially in seasons of difficulty. I'm glad the Lord brought it to our attention.